players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Delver's Secrets, Baleful Strix, Thalia's Lieutenant, and many others. Battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat, they have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is sponsored by Cardboard Live and TheEpicStorm.com. Friday, friends. It's episode five of the Eternal Glory podcast. My name is Anurag Das, and I'm joined here today with Brian Cook and Wilson Hunter. So off the bat, I'd like to say thank you to Albert Lindbaum for uh, the generous donation. We do appreciate your support. And once again, for everyone who is interested in supporting the podcast, please check out uh, www.theeternalglorypodcast.com. It's a sick website. Brian has put like 20, 30, maybe 40 hours into it, a lot of time. And Honestly, I think it's one of the best podcast websites, uh, magic-related, that I've seen. Um, as usual, we'll start the episode off with some feedback from um, episode four. So, the first comment, um, Victor Bernhardt says, Hey there. Regarding Death and Taxes and Palace Jailer, Death and Taxes has played it since it came out, but as Death and Taxes suffered from general Deathrite Shaman Syndrome, it didn't really get a chance to shine. Also in the DRS meta, we had more matchups where Palace Trailer wasn't great. I feel like uh, this one is addressed to me. Actually, and that's a really good point because I could have sworn, I really could have sworn that Jailer wasn't like mainstream until like last year or very recently at least. But I, I'm, I'm guessing now that maybe it was actually, this is a really good point actually, that Deathrite Shaman was just like sort of drowning out some of the other cards and some of the other archetypes. So it's kind of cool now. To actually see like um, cards like Palace Jailer in the format. If you think about it, cards with a higher converted mana cost would normally see more play underneath the Death Rate Shaman metagame. But because Death and Taxes doesn't really cheat on mana in any sort of way, and the decks that would want to play a four mana card just weren't, pal play weren't playing Palace Jailer. Yeah, that's a good point. And also, it's kind of like, um, well, you, you could also spin it the other way around, right? With Deathrite Shaman, you get that early acceleration. So you get to, if you play just cheaper cards, your deck is just operating at such a faster pace than, a, than you know, like a deck like Death and Taxes with their four mana Palace Jailer could actually afford to, I don't know, fight with. Tit for tat. Basically, I, I long story short, Deathrite Shaman did a great job at like pushing some other cards out of the format. Glad to see it uh, gone. Glad to see the rest of the format get a chance to breathe. Second question, coming from Torshed, is saying, uh, oh, this one's funny. What's Wilson's favorite pinball table? IMO, Theater of Magic, is the best casual table in existence, followed very closely by the Attack from Mars and Adam fam Adam's Family Ones. So the good thing about, uh, we appreciate your question. We're actually devoting 50% of this episode's time to answering this. So uh, settle on in, everybody, and uh, let, let's talk about some pinball. So casual tables, it seems like that term here is synonymous with 90s Bally Williams pins. 
which I can appreciate. Certainly some classics. The golden age of pinball. Theater of Magic, very good machine, very fun. Um, you know, I'd, I, I, I hate to disagree with a fellow pinball lover. Uh, for me, Theater of Magic is a little bit shallow on the rule set, even though I, I, I always enjoy it on location. Tack from Mars, definitely one of my favorite 90s pins, so you listed that here. I think Adam's Family is a little overrated, personally. So Adam's Family is the, the most... Uh, produced pinball machine. It's over over 20,000 machines created. Um, so obviously that's definitely one of the most popular machines of all time. I would say in addition to the ones you listed here, I really like Monster Bash from the 90s. I think it came about five years after these machines. So that was in 1998. And uh, I really love some of the new Jersey Jack pinball, pinball machines. Um, some of which include Wizard of Oz and Pirates of the Caribbean are a couple I like. And Anarog knows uh, another pinball machine I like quite a bit. Uh, do you know what that is? Would you like to say it, Anarog? For Valinor! Okay, so the pinball machine he's referring to is Lord of the Rings. So I, I like the Lord of the Rings pinball machine in which Valinor is the wizard mode. One of the uh, deepest and most difficult to achieve wizard modes in all of pinball. Which Wilson has achieved. So Torshed, I really uh, appreciate your question. And uh, yeah, that's my answer. Awesome. Let's take a look at the next comment. NGR227 says, I'm never quite sure if the banter is serious or not, but that almost makes it better. It's awesome to hear three experts discuss their opinions in a clear, concise, and logical manner. Manner. I can't talk. Lastly, Anurag, I don't really care at all, and by no means am I trying to be an ass. But for future reference, it's par for the course, like a golf course, upon which you aim to hit for par. Yeah, I don't all I'm going to say is I, I appreciate the notif, uh, and I, I will try to say the correct phrase next time. Also, what do you say? Do you I know? legitimately have my look, my memory. Like, see, look, I have played miracles for so long that I've basically conditioned myself to have like the attention span, the memory span of a fish. Like it's just spin top, look at the three cards, put them back five seconds done. I don't remember anything else. So <laughs> is, is that like the opposite of what you would think would happen? I don't know. I feel like I've conditioned myself to become really stupid playing this deck. That being said, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I appreciate the feedback. It makes me very happy. And then it looks like uh, we've got two more comments from Phil Romans. He says, Thanks for the episode. Hope you guys spend a little time reviewing your predictions in the next episode. Phil, we have dedicated our segment today to you going over our predictions. So we will definitely, you know, stay tuned for that. Well, oh, you, what, what are you talking about predictions? You mean our, our Niagara Falls prediction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so at some point in this cast, we will like talk about. Oh, review our. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So we'll talk about what we said, what happened, and, you know, maybe like take a look at uh, whether we were right, whether we were wrong why we were right, why we were wrong. Okay, cool. Yeah, so uh, we have one more comment. This is my, uh, well, I'll say second favorite. The pinball one was my favorite, but um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this. So I freaking love you guys' podcast. It is the best legacy podcast available for consumption on the internet. I listened to it on my way to Grand Prix Niagara Falls and 100% because of you guys and your content, I managed to sneak into the top eight of the event. Thank you guys so much for all you do. That is from our good friend, Jeremy. Jerry, my heart is melting. Your kind words mean so much to us. On to the first topic of, of the today. Um, of the today. Oh, man. I'm already letting down the viewers. 
Let's talk about our events from Niagara Falls. Now, Wilson, I know you were not at Niagara Falls. You were planning for, you know, uh, much greater things. I think you were at the Pro Tour just this last weekend, right? Cardboard Live uh, um, had quite the grand entrance there. Yes, I, I was. I was at the Pro Tour, not playing at the Pro Tour, but uh, helping operate the Cardboard Live features on the stream and cheering on our sponsored team. So I had a good time doing that. It was definitely work so it, it felt a little more uh a little more tiring than the, the slinging of the cardboard that i have been used to at these events but it was it was fun and uh awesome that we're able to to use our stuff on on the big stage but that being said i wasn't able to go to niagara falls because of all of the travel i've done uh for cardboard live recently and um had a narrow window to spend a little time with my family before going on that trip to to europe Wilson, did you try to follow the Grand Prix at all uh, over the weekend? I know it was Easter and you were probably very busy doing family activities, but when you had a moment to yourself, were you able to check standings or anything like that? Like, how easy was it to follow the Grand Prix from home? Did you try? For Yeah, from my standpoint, it was uh, not that easy to follow what was happening, but we did have a person uh, doing some great updating on Twitter, I believe here in, in our, in our podcast. Is that correct? Anurag? Twitter.com slash onzi 104. I pr- tried to basically do like a turn by turn of the semifinals and uh, the, the finals of the event, which is pretty, pretty interesting just in terms of like getting a taste of what it's like to cover, like from that aspect. Yeah. I don't know. That was pretty exciting actually um, for anyone who did miss or, you know, hasn't seen that yet, you can get, like, a play-by-play, sort of. It's not exactly the same as video coverage. Obviously, uh, I, I reached out to Channel Fireball at the event, and I was like, hey, can I just potato cam this? And they said, unfortunately, due to, um, like, contract reasons and things beyond that, that, you know, they wouldn't... I, I couldn't do that at the time. So Twitter was the best I could do. Although I will say that I am trying to get in touch with Channel Fireball for maybe working on Atlanta coverage, but that's, like, months ahead. So we'll... Uh, We'll see where we go get with that. That'll be really sweet. But yeah, so from my perspective, thank you for doing that because it was otherwise certainly difficult to know and understand what was happening. One more final point about that is you'd think that there's only a couple legacy events per year, and I know they're not covering every GP, but you'd think that there would have been coverage at Niagara Falls, and I think it was just a huge failure that there was no coverage, not even written coverage, just nothing. And I think that... Channel Fireball slash Wizards probably should have stepped up for those um, from home. I know it was Easter weekend, so maybe that's why perhaps that coverage was expected to be down. Like they weren't going to get enough viewers to get the bang for their buck. But I think it would have been nice for the legacy diehards out there. But uh, on to my event. So uh, unlike Anurag, I didn't do incredibly well over the weekend, but I played some really good magic. I don't feel like I punted. Uh, I don't. I can't think of anything that I did that wasn't, you know, like a, obviously like a match loss or anything like that. But uh, I do want to discuss a really cool deck I faced in one of the MCQs. It was Jund Phoenix. So everyone listening is probably fairly familiar with the Grixis Phoenix deck or the four color land grant Phoenix deck uh, made popular by David Raxa. This is kind of a hybrid. So it cuts the blue. So basically you're just losing careful study and thing in the ice. And instead, you're gaining the Buried Alive package, but you're also getting Faithless Looting. So I'm going to run down some of the core of this deck. So you have 
for ritual, for metamorphose, for rite of flame, for buried alive, for faithless looting, for thought seas, for cabal therapy, for arc light phoenix, for young pyromancer, for bedlam reveler, for land grant, and then 16 lands. Uh, and when I faced Kyle Flynn, round one, who was playing this deck, I was blown away at how fucking sweet it was. Uh, he went turn one, right of flame, young pyromancer, followed it up with cabal therapy with a faithless looting. Uh, and then like got a Phoenix in a play, then flashed it back to therapy. And like, I was just dead. Like there was nothing I could have done. And, uh, most of you listening probably know that I have a pretty, uh, big soft spot for right of flame. So I just thought this deck was incredibly cool and, uh, was worth mentioning. I think it could possibly be the future of the Phoenix decks. Uh, I know that Kyle lost playing for top 32 of the GP Magic Fest, whatever you would like to call it. Uh, Wilson or Honorar, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, does the uh, existence of Rite of Flame in this deck positively or negatively affect your opinion of it? Um, I think it's positive, but not by a whole lot. I think the deck is still very good without it. Uh, Rite of Flame is good because you're playing Bedlam Revelers, and it's a way of keep on chaining... Uh, Bedlam Revelers with your spells like uh, Faithless Looting. So I caught one of uh, Kyle's matches in day two against, uh, I'm blanking on his name, the gentleman who won the Syracuse Open with Blue Red Delver. Rich Kelly. Rich Kelly. Uh, so Rich Kelly had a young Pyromancer in play, a Graf Digger's Cage, a one card in hand, and Kyle was Hellbent. And Kyle drew Bedlam Reveler into Rite of Flame and another Bedlam Reveler, which drew his Cyborg of Braid, which destroyed the cage. And then he swung for nine with two Bedlams in play. Like, it was just an amazing series of events. And I know, like, this probably isn't the norm, but it just helps show you that, like, the deck is incredibly powerful even when you don't have the Buried Alive draws. Jeez. Hey, would you say Land Grant is, like, a turn two play in this deck? I'm not really sure. I know that Kyle played it turn one a lot against me because it allows another instant or sorcery into your dark ritual buried alive because you can go land grant ritual buried alive without needing another ritual. Yeah, it's uh, I'm just thinking so there's just some different play patterns here, right? So it's like it's land grant is just is a very interesting one. I'm, I'm just thinking about for the first time because it can sometimes be totally unplayable in certain hands but other times do a ton in terms of uh your spell count for for phoenix early on on turns one or two so i'm thinking that there could be some lines with faithless looting for example where you can land grant right of flame faithless looting or on turn two land grant faithless looting and another spell that costs one mana like a discard spell so I don't really have an opinion on it. I'm just thinking out loud that it's this this Phoenix deck is it's higher variance with some of these rituals and land grant and some what I would call unquote storm cards, but it also has a, a very interesting different angle of attack uh, using a different axis with these creatures, um, adding in the the four bedlams to the young pyromancers. So yeah, it's pretty neat. Yeah, I also want to say bedlam reveler seems like. It seems really insane in this deck because you have so many cards. Like, you don't even have to maximize on the value of the card. Like, ideally, you'd be like, you know, with an empty hand playing Bedlam Reveler and then, you know, recalling or whatever. But, like, ditching Arclight Phoenix, Cabal Therapy, even like Faithless Looting. Uh, honestly, Bedlam Reveler is like one of the most underrated cards, I think, in Legacy. Like, I played against it in a challenge the other day and it, it absolutely smacked me. I wonder if there's uh, more design space in the format with the card. 
So you might be wondering if the green was just, just, just for Langrand. I can't talk tonight, guys. Uh, but there's actually green in the sideboard for Ancient Grudge and then two copies of Choke. I brought this up to the car that I rode with on the way home, and they were wondering why the Chokes weren't Blood Moons. I don't have a good reason. I know that Kyle was personally running Chokes. So that's why they're in there. I don't know if Anurag is a blue mage has a strong opinion on this or not. Choke is better against the card Island, basic Island. <laughs> and I think that is actually a very, very relevant reason. Um, just because, well, I don't know. I played against Blood Moon from the other opposing side, and I played against Choke from the other side. You can probably guess which one I dislike more. I probably verbalized my hatred for this green card, um, which also was very interestingly enough in the ninth place list of uh, Niagara Falls. It was like Steel Stompy with uh, a green splash for Choke. That's how powerful it is. So I think in this current meta, I, I like the Chokes over the Blood Moons. Um, it does make your mana a little bit more awkward but i still think uh like the payoff is definitely there yeah i don't think it's apples to apples like i think this is what do you want to do with your sideboard slots how does it map out against different matchups blood moon and choke are similar cards but they're used in totally different matchups and in different ways so to me the question is more of do you want a choke or do you want something different that is good against a miracle style deck and Choke is a reasonable uh, plan of attack. I like that it is, you know, I used the word axis a few minutes ago. It, it, it's the same thing there. It attacks on a different axis. It's an enchantment that hits the table and is extremely good against your opponent who is likely sideboarding to beat uh, both a graveyard strategy and aggressive creatures. So certainly surprising. Um, the kind of thing that maybe now that this list is out there, if people copy it card for card or, or what have you, then the surprise factor maybe makes it not quite as good, but you can only do so much in your sideboarding to prepare for that, which is, by the way, why I like cards like Spell Pierce and Miracles nowadays, because people do a lot of things like like this. Um, so that's that's sort of my take on it, is that uh, you know clearly Blood Moon is, is an option, just a totally different purpose in the sideboard if you were to run that. Okay. So uh, we'll post this, post what we think Kyle's list was in the show notes. This is just a rough guesstimate. I sat with Kyle. He told me that pretty much the entire main deck was all four ofs other than the land. So I'm pretty confident in uh, the main deck. He might have had Lotus Petals. I don't remember seeing them, but we'll post that. That's a good question. So, like, because I'm thinking out loud, Bryant, that we have 16 lands. Right now, are you how certain are is with that, four land grant? Yeah, and four land grant. So are we? Uh, it could have been twelve lands and four petals. I don't know for sure. Yeah, see, that's well. When you just said the petal comment, I'm starting to think if that were the case, land grant would start to make a lot more sense to me because the turn one off of twelve lands instead of sixteen is just so much more reliable but i don't know yeah I mean, he probably had pedals and i just don't remember seeing them i'm pretty old i just turned 30 so uh <laughs> put me out to pasture already uh so we'll get into my main event Jeez. i had two buys and then round three i'm waiting around for the pairings to get called and bob walks over to me and goes get ready to get wrecked cookie and just runs away and i'm like okay bob <laughs> Like, I don't really know what's going on here, Mr. Huang. And I look down and I get a buzz notification from Top, top Duct saying that I am facing someone whose first name I don't recognize. And I guess I I faced Bob in Tournament Magic 
three or four times now, but I didn't know that Bob had multiple DCI numbers. And I'm not going to call out Bob's real name because it's not my place, but I was a little shocked. I guess they he entered the event with an old name for a surprise factor, and it certainly caught me off guard. Um, but that was really interesting. Our game one, Bob led on turn one Thoughtseize, and then had the turn three kill in play when I managed to draw Dark Ritual and kill him. So that was pretty sweet. And then uh, game two, Bob foolishly tapped out on turn one for Dark Confidant. Um, greatness at any cost was not good enough because I cast Ad Nauseam. Sorry, Bobo. <laughs> the cost was losing to you. Exactly. And then Bob <laughs> went on to day two, and uh, I did not. So well, who, who really got the last laugh there? Hey, we could have done without that. In fact, let's edit that out. No, I'm just kidding. Wowzers. <laughs> uh, so just kidding. Whenever a storm player enters a big event, there's generally one rule, and it's that you want to dodge your really, really bad matchups. And uh, I did not do that round four. I faced Black Red Reanimator where I was turn one twice, and I would turn one to him game two or turn two to him. And then game three, I actually had a turn one, but I was on the draw, so such is life. Uh, I lost to Death and Taxes in, like, kind of a miserable fashion. Uh, so most people know Death and Taxes is, like, a 70, 75% win percentage for the Epic Storm. But uh, I kept a hand game one where all I had to do was end of turn brainstorm into any mana source, and I won turn two. And I failed. So uh, my opponent played Thalia, and I lost. And then game two, my opponent mulliganed. So uh, a trick that most people do is you'll thought seize on your turn two, so that way you can thought seize away their scry if they keep to the top. So I did that. It turns out my opponent had kept all graveyard hate. So it was like surgicals, uh, rest in peace. They actually had both in their hand and like aether vials. Like they just had nothing. So I took their recruiter of the guard that was their only creature, and then my opponent drew Thalia, and I lost. So uh happens. Yeah. So, like, I don't feel like I misplayed. It's just, like, unfortunately, the games just, like, didn't go my way with those two losses. And then uh, I beat Junkman Rage and Miracles the next two rounds. Nothing too exciting, just, like, standard magic. And, unfortunately, I lost my winning in for day two against Blue White Stoneblade. Our game one was probably, like, a 30-minute battle where it resulted in me playing four must counters on the final turn. And my opponent just had exactly four counters. Thanks to spell snare, which I did notice was very popular in Niagara falls. A lot of people are playing one to two copies of spell snare. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense with uh, people picking up Stoneforge mystics uh, game two. I actually acted a little bit like ant. I played four discard spells on turn four and then went ritual, ritual ad nauseum. So I, Played the cantrip game where I cast four cantrips early on and then just sculpted my game plan. And uh, game three was pretty crazy. I My opponent mulliganed. I went turn one, Hope of Gearper. They force a world. Turn two, I cast Empty the Warrens for ten goblins, holding Infernal Tutor in my hand with a Lion's Eye Diamond in play. My opponent had Flusterstorm. And I made the decision to not pay for the Flusterstorm because if I draw a Dark Ritual or another Lion's Eye Diamond off top of my deck next turn i can add nauseam and what are the odds my opponent still has counter magic so i my, actually drew cabal therapy which would have been pretty good with six goblins still in play my opponent not having any board presence but i was a little bit worried about stoneforge so my opponent draws stoneforge mystic plays it gets batter skull i play the therapy naming batter skull they just have lands in their hand uh so i pass 
they draw, play land, pass. I draw dark ritual. I go all in, and they had counter spell. So oh, it was a pretty sad way to end my weekend. But I feel like I played some pretty quality magic, and just sometimes things don't go your way, and you have to recognize that. Like we are playing a game of variance, and you're not always going to win, no matter how prepared you are. Uh, so I am done taking up all the airtime. No, that was great. I I didn't see obviously uh, that match, but you did a good job of describing it. It sounds like you definitely made the correct decision in not paying for six goblins. I mean, I would I would think that generally the way to lose there is just by putting yourself in a situation where all your opponent has to do is play a Stoneforge Mystic in order to beat you because you're that's literally. I mean, they're playing a game with four stone forges and a bunch of cantrips in their deck. You obviously have gas and your most of your deck is mana. So it makes sense to me why you would not want to just go in on six goblins there. Um, but that's just sort of my distant view of what you're describing. Yeah. One of the interesting thing that you mentioned was that uh, the stone blade player had like spell snare and that sort of carried them in that one game. And, I want to point out, and I don't know if this is like a weird phenomenon that happens before like bigger 15 round legacy events, but Brian Koval was actually streaming his Stoneblade list and he was doing really, really well in his streams and stuff like that. Um, and he had this really neat list that had like Palace Shaler, multiple spell snares, lots of spell pierces in his Stoneblade list. And I wonder how many people are actually just like using that exact 75. I, I know for a fact that, you know, Multiple people were saying, yeah, I'm just playing Koval's list. It looks really good. And it played out really well, too. So, And this was all just like this sort of like blade list formed all about like a week or so before the main event. So I don't know, it's just kind of interesting to me how like the biggest meta changes or, you know, maybe like level one, level two, level three decisions in deck building come out like just like so snickety snap right before the main event segueing into mine of my uh, my tournament it begins on friday where i basically oh one drop out of a ptq i mean i played out a couple more the rest of the rounds but i died you know in the first round uh, to double stifle side note miracles players out there please 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 beware of the card cinder vines it is actually really good against us and uh yeah uh disenchant probably you know a worthwhile inclusion post board games against rug delver but yeah, so the PTQ was kind of just a lost cause. But, you know, I, I played it out mostly because I wanted to warm up my uh, paper playing skills for anybody who is listening who exclusively grinds on Magic Online. You know sometimes that when you go to a paper event, it's it's a little hard to like, you know, lube up the, the fingers, um, if I might. <laughs> Wilson just like is giving me this really funny face now. But yeah, no, I just, I needed that preparation. One of my goals this weekend was to not get a draw in the, the main event. Spoiler alert, I met this goal because I oh, just like all my other previous GP performances have, there's been a draw in, in, in most of them and I'm not really happy with that. Just looking to improve in that department. But uh, yeah, so that was my goal and that's why I played in the PTQ. On the main event, the main event actually started at 3 a.m. for me, which is when I went to bed. Ten minutes prior, I had finalized my deck list, and I decided to play red this weekend, mostly because I was anticipating a very specific meta, and I think red tackled the meta quite well. So, yeah, I had red in my list, and I wasn't really sure about my card choices, but I just kind of, like, eventually said, you know what, submit a list and just play the best magic that you can, and that's 
I don't know. That's just like sort of like a nice uh, way to look at it where it's like at some point you can't stress over like the the infinite detail because it's just it's just not worth the time, you know, diminishing returns and the things and the likes. So I submitted this list round. OK, I, I don't actually know what this is, but my three losses on day one all happened in uh, how do I explain this for the last three years, every Grand Prix that I have gone to. I've had two buys and then I immediately lose the third round. And it is probably one of the most tilting experiences to have to like play upwards. Like, you know, the just the thought of like having to win out the rest of the day is mentally taxing. Maybe it's good for me because, you know, I've just day two a lot. The pressure like kicks in. I'm just like, I got to win. Got to play my best, you know, magic ever, I guess. But I lost the first round to Blue Red Delver. I lost later on to Blue Red Delver again at the hands of Ed D'Amico. He was playing like a really cool stifle-based list. I think, I'm not really sure. We had really close games, both of the Blue Red Delver matches, and I could have maybe played better. But the blasts were pretty good in these matchups. I had the basic mountain in my sideboard, so I was able to, you know, just mess around with uh, Snapcasters and Blasts and kill Terramanders and things like that, and that felt really good. I did, however, beat Blue Red Delver for my day two win and in, which felt really, really good. Um, one useful tool, actually, and I, I don't know, this is this is sort of in the realm of ethics, and you tell me how you guys feel about this. Um, so, stars, uh, sorry, Channel Fireball had you know their online pairings um, on on the website, and for each opponent, you could click their name and see like who they had played against in prior rounds. And what I had found out was that a number of my opponents had actually played against people that I had you know, or sorry, a number of my opponents had played against you know people my friends had played against prior. And so I did have a little bit of a heads up information going into some of the rounds. And I know there's a little controversy about like, you know, is that like really, is that against the spirit of the game or is that like public information since, you know, like, is it really like that bad to ask your friends about these kind of things? What would you like, how do you guys feel about that? I don't think there's anything wrong with that. In fact, like at the highest levels of magic, that's the norm. Like at Pro Tours, teams share information like they watch people's matches and add what that person was playing to a spreadsheet so that way the entire team can look up their matches before each round and i know it's very popular for grinders to ask their friends like what x person is playing this week or so on and so forth like i think it's just a part of magic culture at this point and if you're against it um that's fine but you're almost putting yourself at a disadvantage at least in my opinion this is part of why I personally enjoy the sharing of deck lists at competitive or professional events because it is a non-in-game act that has a major effect on uh, competitive advantage within the game itself. And I understand that the community reaction was fairly negative against sharing of deck lists at Mythic Championship London. But at the end of the day, I think it played out really nicely. I think it gave put people on an equal playing field. And I'm with Brian. It's, it's the kind of thing where if, if the rules of the game exist so that you can scout and there's all these different things that you have access to, then, I mean, that's, what, that's fair. It's fair game. But I think that the structure of our game can exist in a way to, to mitigate those things, potentially. I mean, like, on one hand, it's like, this is the kind of information that really matters for my deck, especially because I play cards that are really good in certain matchups and really bad in certain matchups, and knowing what I can keep and what I have to mulligan, just, it, it matters a lot. 
from from my perspective at least but then again it's just like what if my opponent doesn't know what i'm playing then it's just like there's a weird like a grimy feeling where it's just like i have an unfair advantage and then i don't know the, the ethics behind it definitely are are it's it's a gray area in my mind i just i personally want to be playing this game in order to to play as much magic as possible when you sit across from your opponent and there is definitely this aspect of the unknown or potential unknown that exists for often both players, but sometimes just one if you're a personality in the space. Like both of you guys are not going to be surprising a lot of people if they watch any online content about what you're playing. And, uh, you know, anything that sort of evens the playing field as far as that goes and allows for more cards to interact with each other over the course of a 50-minute match is something that I'm personally in favor of. So if you watch the coverage from London, you'll see that uh, Shaheen Sarani had an interview with Brian David Marshall where he talks about how, as a control player, he thinks the London Mulligan benefited him more than any other archetype because you have so many cards, like Anurag said, in control decks that are dedicated to certain matchups, like Swords to Plushers or Terminus, aren't going to be fantastic in combo matchups. So you're able to mulligan hands where you know that those are dead cards. And he said that he felt like he had a huge advantage over the field due to this. So, yeah, it was pretty interesting. Like, I think that they said the number one most played card on day one at Mythic Championship London was Surgical Extraction. And a lot of people were playing multiple copies main deck. Obviously, Phoenix decks already did that. And I know we're getting into modern a little bit. People don't really care about that. Um, but it is an example of how information, because just so we can clarify for the viewer, players were able to see each other's deck lists. And in doing that, you can make more informed mulligan decisions, which happens to be very complementary to the new London mulligan rule uh, in which you can see more cards from, from your mulligans as well. So I was a big fan of both of those changes. I think that overall I would judge for the social media reactions being overall negative, very negative before the event, and generally quiet and maybe slightly positive after the event, after people saw how well it seemed to go for Modern, which is the format that could really break it the most. So um, personally, I would love to see things like that implemented in Legacy. I think we went on a little bit of a uh, off-topic rent here, and that's sort of my fault. But um, definitely has to do with the sharing of information at these GPs and you know, going from watching the Mythic Championship for three straight days to hearing what you're talking about here, which is sort of the imbalanced access to player deck list choice and you know everybody knowing what deck Bryant's playing when they sit across from him there's all these things that I wish were not factors in a, in a game and I wish that people were on the same playing field when they sit down and they play for 15 yeah, minutes I definitely agree that being said going back to my my event so like round eight it's the winning in my back's against the wall I'm x and two I look at my opponent's you know history and it turns out he beat one of my friends, um, Ved, in an earlier round. And, you know, that was sort of like a blessing that I got to figure out what my opponent was on. He was on Blue-Red Delver. I kept a hand that was very good in the matchup. We had two very uh, great games. I came out ahead and made day two. I picked up another loss right immediately after losing to um, Sneak and Show with Baseju. And I'd honestly call that a pretty bad matchup for Miracles. Um, somehow I was able to steal game one. But game two, games two and three were just not even close. So, yeah, I don't know. I I was uh, mixed feelings because at this point, like, you know, your X3 going into a Grand Prix 
And this is sort of just like a mental mental sort of uh, realization, but I, I wasn't really sure if I even wanted to play day two out because I was dead for top eight. And, you know, when you go to an event and you have the most competitive aspect, top eight is like probably the most important thing, you know, like getting ninth place like is great, but like at the end of the day, you don't make the Elam rounds. And I don't know, for, for me, like it's, it's just crazy how much it matters. And so at this point I was really depressed, just didn't want to play until I kind of just like smacked myself in the face. I was like, get your stuff together, get your shit together, play it out you know, you've got a consistent record of, you know, across GPs, you need to do better this time. And so I just wanted to, you know, I played it out for my own personal sake to, uh, to you know, just do, do the best that I could. And I know that's not like, I mean, I, I figured that was a good enough reason. I was happy with it uh, just as a motivational factor, but it was good to be able to like identify like a weakness, pull myself out of that ditch and then like play good magic in the next day, right? So you weren't exactly excited to have Indian food with me Saturday night? Like, you weren't looking forward to that at all, or drinks or anything like that, Anurag? You talk about all this magic stuff, but I was there right next to you the entire time, and uh, I was just excited to spend time with you. You're my, you're, you're my family. I love you, Bryant. Indian food is also very good. Okay, so after that question, I have a very specific question. After getting spanked multiple times by Blue Red Delver, has that changed your approach to the matchup at all moving forward? I actually don't know. And honestly, like, here's my here's my official answer is just like, there's so many new cards out of the new set that any results and testing that I had for the Grand Prix, I'm kind of just like packing it in a suitcase and keeping it in the back of my mind because like, I want to just try out new cards and try new things out and, you know, just see how... In the in the world of all these new cards, like the way that the old matchups play out is not really necessarily the same. I mean, I think I think my approach was still sound in in, in um in, by definition or whatever. But I, I would have to like critically think about why games didn't go out as uh, I had hoped. I I can't actually I, I admit that there were a couple of mistakes that I had made in one of my matches. So at least that's something to reflect on. I'm not really sure what I could have done differently against uh, Ed D'Amico. Okay, so if that was your official response, what is your unofficial response? I, I, think, I think my approach is still fine. Like, I'd still register the same approach for that event, do the same things. I uh, birded you a lot on Sunday. Oh, I was yeah? told to quit standing behind you in the aisles. Oh. I don't, I don't understand the problem, but I did notice that you beat one of your worst matchups three or four times on Sunday. What matchup was that, Anurag? Yeah, Sunday was basically doomsday for me. I, I I don't think I've ever had a harder like re- like set of matches just ever in any event. So Sunday, round nine, I played against Sneak and Show with Baseju. Round ten, I played against Dark Depths. Bob says it's a buy for Depths. Round eleven, I played against. Sorry, no round no nine, ten, eleven. Yeah, round eleven, I played against Eldrazi. Round twelve, I played against Eldrazi again, and then round fourteen and fifteen. I played against Sneak and Show twice. Round 15 being against the godfather of magic himself, Jonathan Angulescu, a.k.a. JPA93, a.k.a. I I basically made like a shrine to him in the last episode, so you can catch that. That's interesting. So from my experience, Eldrazi can be very tough. Sneak and Show is certainly not fun, especially the way that you construct your list. Oftentimes you make yourself better against some of these blue control lists and sacrifice some against sneak and show, which is an understandable, reasonable strategy, but it also makes that matchup more difficult. What I don't understand is you're saying Robert Huang says that it is a miracles is a buy for depths. Is that what you just said? Yeah, I did say that. Yeah. That makes absolutely no sense to me. So I think that that's a very, reasonable matchup for miracles but yeah other other than that it sounds like your day was 
pretty tough. So you had two Eldrazi and two Sneak and Show back to back, you know, four times. Yeah, it was pretty miserable. And I, and I and this is the probably one of the more exciting parts. It was Eldrazi aggro in the first round. My opponent. Oh, there are a couple of highlights. The first one was my opponent had a Cavern of Souls in play. They cast um, Thought Not Seer. I force a will to Thought Not Seer. They're like caverns in play. And then I promptly said, you you named uh, Spirit with that because they had cast Simeon Spirit Guide off the cavern last turn for some reason. Then also in the next wait, match... Wait, 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 wait. Did they... That's very interesting. Can we talk about that for a second? Did they... You think that they made a mistake, right? They definitely made a mistake there? Or are they trying to get you? They curved chalice into simian spirit guide into thought knots here so and they had to use their cavern to cast the simian spirit guide and was yeah. it pretty clear that turn when they played the cavern they're like what what is what is the simian spirit guide is it a it's a spirit yeah spirit i think it's a, yeah it's a spirit it's a, it's a red monkey whatever yeah yeah whatever its creature type is they made it sort of clear that they were naming that yes 100 percent uh, they weren't trying to game me or anything because as soon as like I said force will it and they were like cavern and I was like no they were like ah dang it you're right and they put it in the graveyard so I don't know man I wish that one was on camera <laughs> sound sounds sort of crazy but yeah go on yeah a couple other highlights uh, in the next match against Eldrazi game one I lose this one but uh, game one they they go turn two thought knots here after turn one chalice my hand is basically garbage. So I cast a an, a mission briefing, which I played one of copy in, in my Ooh. list. Yeah. Mission, a blind mission briefing. My graveyard is empty, and I, I find a force of will off the top of my deck. So yeah, I throw it in the yard, and I, I exile it um, on, the, on the recast, or the flashback cast, or whatever it is. So that was pretty exciting. We Wait, had a so little... you had a blue card in your hand? Like you did the alternate cost? Yeah, I did the alt cost for force of will, yeah. So... That was kind of exciting. I um, also, my opponent had some banter in between games. He was like, yeah, I really dislike how Back to Basics is a thing now. It's made me play differently. I've got this special tech card. Maybe you'll get to see it. And then in game two on like turn like six, my opponent plays the card Sands of Time. Do you guys know what that is? Zero clue. Nope. Yeah, so it's I don't I don't I don't know what the set is, but it's a four mana artifact, and it basically says each player skips their untap step. At the beginning of your upkeep, tap everything that's untapped and untap everything that's tapped. So you basically get to un untap all your lands after, you know, back to basic keeps them tapped. And I was like, this is a pain because I had like mentor and a couple tokens out. And I was like, wait, so my entire like board of creatures gets like fogged for an entire turn. That was really frustrating. So I don't know. That was um, certainly very interesting. The art is pretty, pretty uh, old school here. Yeah, and I want to make a, I want to make a public apology to uh, Jonathan because I played really badly in one of our games where he hard cast a force of will on my monastery mentor. I did not realize that it was a, uh, besaged, so it was uncounterable, and I actually forced back his force of will. This is one of those times where it's important to play paper because usually on Magic Online there's like a nice line of blue text that's like can't be countered and it certainly wasn't there so the training wheels were off and i just kind of like got myself why are you apologizing for that i just i i have a i feel like i feel like if i can't deliver the most competitive game of magic i just feel like a little bit responsible for that so anarag you never have to be sorry playing against me like that Oh, against you, I'll never be sorry. You're right. But against the... Okay, so I even told him. It was so embarrassing because, like, like 
I was talking to him, and then like at, at the end of the match, I was like, I messed up in front of somebody that I look up to, and like I, I mean, he this, he's also just one of the most polite people I've ever met because he was just like, have a good day, and then he walked up and left. Who are we talking about? JPA ninety three. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. So, oh, I see. Yeah, so you were fanboying. I was that's, fanboying. That's why. Yeah, that's yeah. why. Yeah. Okay, I get it. Anurag, if you ever played that poorly against me, I would let everyone know. Yeah, I know. I, dude, I'm doing my due diligence letting everybody know because, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So, I, Wait, I, you made a monk though, right? So that's not strictly a terrible play. You had no, a no, 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 no. The, I, he forcibled the mentor. Oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah it's yeah, bad. Yeah, yeah. Also, shout out to my boy, Monastery Mentor. I'm pretty sure I cast that card uh, wow. in every match that I won. Wow. Every match you won. Your boy, Monastery Mentor. How far... Anurag has come. <laughs> we need to change topics immediately, please. That's, that's pretty <laughs> aggressive to to label mentor as your boy. Too. Wow. So, okay. So. I, I, I remember I, I, six months ago, Anurag cringed at the idea of playing monastery mentor over and treat the angels. Now look at him. He's learned how to win bad matchups by attacking, and I couldn't be more proud. I, I think I'm tearing up a little bit. Aw, thanks, Dad. So yeah, that was my event. All in all, I was pretty happy. Uh, I was. Very excited to rattle off that 6-0 win. Finished 12-3. and um, That was the best performance I've had at a Grand Prix. I think just all in all, just being responsible, mature about my mental game played a very big part in it. I think that's probably one of the more underrated factors in in uh, Magic, just like having the right mental, not tilting and letting tilt define your next few turns and plays and things like that. So shout out to that. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, and then also it was just a blast meeting everybody. Oh, and then after the event, yeah, I was able to to do the the coverage and stuff like that. So that was that was pretty exciting. I really, I, th- I think I really, really just enjoy coverage. I don't know. Have you ever? Have you guys? Have you've done, you guys have all done commentary before, right? We have. So you know what it's like. Yeah. yeah you're you're pretty good at it. Thank you. I, I would like to see you do some video commentary of Legacy. Maybe if Anurag ever flew out to the leaving a legacy opens, he could also do commentary. Yeah, you should definitely do that. So I have never had more fun at a magic weekend than I had at Niagara Falls. I had nothing to do with Niagara at all because it was miserable the entire time. It was just raining, miserable, cold weather. But the crew that we had, which included Anurag, was probably 20 people deep at all times. And we just had like super large fun dinners and everyone was drinking at the hotel bar every night and hanging out. And it was just a blast. Like, even though I didn't do very well in magic, it was just a great time. And I know that I'm just repeating myself now, but I can't stress it enough that I think the legacy community and especially the people that you surround yourselves with, like, it was just worth it. Like I'd paid the money again to go five, four, whatever I went up six, three, five, three. Math is tough, but anyway, I'm done talking now, but it was great. No, that, I, mean, I think that's a good point. Like if, if, if anyone who is listening is ever on the fence about going to a Grand Prix, like it's also a very, very like fun time social event. So keep that in mind if, you know, you're uh, on the fence. Let's harken back to Phil Roman's comment about predictions and uh, maybe compare, contrast, what we said last week with what happened in Niagara Falls. Who wants to start? So I predicted. How was that? I had predicted that in. (laughs) 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 So I had predicted that there would be two copies of blue, white stone blade, two sneak and show one blue red Delver, a Grixis control, 
mono red stompy and a golgari depths okay how many of these decks did you uh call correctly uh i didn't actually do that why would you put me on the spot like this <laughs> i appreciate well, you brian i three had predicted you got three i'm taking the uh i guess i'm not counting the four color deck uh grixis control stone blade sneak and show okay all right i said um i said stone blade would make it i said blue white miracles would make it blue red delver grixis delver mono red stompy sneak and show maverick and death and taxes i i think i did a reasonable job let's see blade made top eight that's one miracles made top eight that's two delver grixis delver made top eight that's three sneak and show was number four death and taxes was number five and i also i'm gonna give myself five and a half saying that the maverick that i pointed out was just like the second copy of death and taxes it's <laughs> <laughs> not in fact you get you get a point taken away for a wow <laughs> still ahead of bryant though all right, Wilson, and how close were you? Yeah, even with that point taken away, I think you beat both of us. So I said one Golgari Depths, two Mono Red Stompies, one Blue Red Delver, one Miracles, one The Epic Storm, one Maverick, one Death and Taxis. It looks like I got two decks correct. And one of those was Miracles. I don't even know if I want to give myself that point because I said it was going to be on a rug. So And was Gerard Fabiano? I'll give it to you. You'll give it to I don't, I don't even want it. Oh. All right. Well, Gerard's list was also very interesting because, like, like I've already made my peace with this deck list. It was definitely very interesting. Um, Emrakul, the promised end. Like, what? You made your. It does not sound like you made your peace with the deck list. <laughs> um, so I do want to say one thing. So it, regarding the top eight, I do remember in the last episode, Brian, you had brought up a really good point that Grixis control was like somewhat poised to make a comeback. It was a really good way to attack the format from multiple angles, and I feel like. It delivered. Are you going to read the show notes for word for word? Um, maybe. <laughs> Look, these are really good show notes, okay? <laughs> um, no, the, the, the show notes say to circle jerk Bryant. So just bear with me. Bear with me, listeners. Uh, but I want to say that Grixis Control did show up. There was one actual copy of Grixis Control in the in the top eight. And then also, also um, Edgar Mahalis. I, th- I hope I'm saying this right. I don't think I said it right. I... Edgar, how do you say your name? Just tell everyone, please. I say Megalhaze. Um, he also made... I'm pre- I'm, I know that's incorrect. I 100% know that's incorrect. Because I said it too, and then I was told it was wrong. But, uh... Okay, Edgar made top eight with um, the Strifo Pile, the four-color punishing DAC deck, which I sort of hearken to, like, a, a beefier version of Grixis Control um, that's better in, like, the mid-range matchups, but maybe a little worse, uh, like, in, like, uh, I don't know couple other matchups but anyways i I think you did a good job brian thank you anurag yeah good good work so i think it's pretty cool that that jerry top aided this event with our help oh are we gonna are we gonna talk about that Uh, uh, i I thought we had solemnly sworn to do no good yeah the official twitter of the eternal glory podcast says we will not like to congratulate gerald james me the third for his magic fest top eight there's a finger on my nose because I did not write that. I think it was Wilson. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I barely know how to use Twitter. Yeah, what, what is what is Twitter? Uh, did you... Okay, never mind. Um, no, yeah, my, my Twitter account is suspended. Do, do, 
Can we talk about this for a second? Yeah, hit me. All right, this is 30 seconds here. A a test player, somebody under the wing, under the umbrella of influence of Sir Bryant Cook, may have made a, an account on Twitter named Wilson Hunter, and the the gods of Twitter decided that that was the real Wilson Hunter. So when I recently in my life decided to make a personal Twitter because I haven't had one for a long time, Twitter thought I was an, an alternate account of a Wilson Hunter that already existed. Androg looks way too happy about this right now. That is so funny! <laughs> that's so great! I don't know why. They're just like, that's del- That's the most delicious story I've heard all week. All right. Um, yeah, they, they asked me for proof of identification. I sent it to them, and then they shut down my account after I sent them actual proof of identification of myself. That's... Wait, that makes no sense. What? It, no, it doesn't. So they, they basically said that my, my proof of ID was bad or something. Interesting. That's quite yeah. strange to me. Right. So I guess <laughs> that's a pretty good recap of Niagara Falls. I mean, like, the event itself was pretty impressive. I think um, Stoneforge Mystic did pretty well just taking, like, eight copies into the finals of the event. Um, Palace Jailer, like, the next best card. Four copies. A full play set of Palace Jailers in the finals of the event. Jeez. Yeah. But uh, a lot has changed. A lot has changed in the last few weeks, mostly because, mostly because a new set has come out. A new set has been released, and honest to God, honest like, it, first of all, it's called War for the Spark. It's the new set, isn't it? War uh, of featuring the Spark? thirty. Really? Yeah, I think it's War of the Spark, right? I, is I it? Thought it was War for Art Thou Spark. And that sounds right, actually. Am I wrong? Okay, the war villain. for the planet of the apes. No, um, war for the, why, why would you? Why would it be a war of this? You, you're fighting. Oh, it is war of the spark. What? That I, makes no sense. What? I'm, I'm just never gonna talk again. I apologize, guys. <laughs> um, but no, this is a set that featured like 36 different planeswalkers, and there's definitely like a lot of heavy hitters that are you know going to make their debut into the legacy format. Last week we spoke about one specific planeswalker that I thought was gonna be very good, Teferi the Time Raveler, and I want to just start off the bat by saying, look, Wilson, you may have been more right than I had originally. (gasps) I'm clipping that. I am looping it over various songs and show tunes I enjoy and going to, yeah. Thank you. So I'll start by saying last week I played in the, the Sunday challenge. Um, I was able to make top four with an interesting take on Miracles featuring three separate Planeswalkers, six in total. I played two copies of Teferi, uh, Time Raveler. I played two copies of Jace, the Mind Sculptor. And I played two copies of, can you guys guess? Palace Trailer. Narset. The new Narset. What? Damn. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The new Narset. So um, here's, here's, I'll I'll just uh, start spewing information and, you know, you guys just chime in where you want. So my show notes say Narset good, Teferi less than good, uh, Sahili sucks, and the new Jace also sucks. So I'll start by with the new, with the why Teferi was maybe not as good as I anticipated. Um, We did a breakdown on each of the individual abilities of Teferi. And while I'm still con- convinced that in paper it looked like it was really good, in practice, maybe what's just happening is that, you know, you put Teferi into play, you start ticking up, but nothing really happens. Like, you're not really generating any advantage or anything like that. 
I think my ultimate takeaway was like, it's not Teferi like as a standalone card that's good. You always have to have some sort of peripheral action going on alongside Teferi. So whether that be like, you know, a couple extra planeswalkers or heavy hitting threats, counterbalances, you know, if you, you have to have like the sorcery speed spells like, wait, sorcery spell speeds? Sorcery, sorcery. Uh, so sorcery speed spells. Yeah, sorcery speed spells. That's really confusing, okay? Like, don't get mad at me for that. Come on. Um, <laughs> Wilson is face palming right go, now. Go on, go on. Yeah. You have to have something alongside it. I did I did get to enjoy pondering into Entreat the Angels on my opponent's end step. That felt really good. I even got to uh, block some number of creatures, like a couple Monastery Mentors and Stoneforge Mystics. That felt really good. And my opponent really couldn't do anything about it because thank you to Fairy. Um, but all in all, it's just like, it's not as good as I thought it was. And I, I, st I also don't want to say that it's like a bad card because part of part of testing is first you need to sample size. Second, you need just like, it's impossible for me to see what's in my opponent's hand as they concede. Um, so I don't really know how many like counter spells are in there or how much removal they couldn't cast when they wanted to cast it, things like that. You know what I mean? So I'm still like on the fence about Teferi, probably leaning towards playing it because it just synergizes so well with some of the other cards in the deck. Like being able to play Teferi into Jace or Teferi into Entreat, those are all like just powerful, powerful interactions. Um, yeah, you're, I don't you're sending a lot of confusing signals. Yeah. See that, so. and that that kind of that kind of like I get that it's confusing, but that is also sort of my 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 take on the card. Like I'm confused because it's it's not bad, but I'm also not willing to call it like good. You know what you I mean? Basically, just said it doesn't really do anything, but yeah, the <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really do anything. But then there's just like random situations where it just like it makes your deck the most busted like there's just the most busted thing that could be going on because like not having to worry about like force of will or any counter magic that's nuts like playing my ponder and preordain and council's judgment at instant speed that's nuts is it uh, so you want to we can go i don't know how deep we want to go into this but i don't know if that's nuts so i think that's an important thing to identify here right mm. how how nuts is being able to play those sorcery speed spells on your opponent's turn you described one scenario which is awesome which is you got to ponder on your opponent's turn in order to entreat at instant speed. And that's pretty cool. It was also encounterable, which is pretty cool. But it's also best case scenario. Yeah, it's best case scenario, and it is a three-mana planeswalker you have invested invested in and untapped with in order to make all of this happen. So that's sort of what I'm what I'm curious about there. Is, yeah. uh, Could I have done something better? Yeah. Yeah, like the, it's all about, for me, and Legacy is about opportunity cost, right? There's a lot of interesting synergies that Teferi brings to the table. But it's a three-mana blue Planeswalker that you need to be able to untap with to start to, to start to do things with, you know? So yeah. that's just, you know, my, Ooh. My, my take on something. The other super sick interaction was Teferi. All right, end step, Snapcaster, flashback, ponder, untap, uh, attack with Snapcaster, bounce my Snapcaster, uh, live the dream sort of. That was kind of cool too. That came up on so it's it's kind of like what you're saying. It's just like a lot of like weird corner case scenarios, but it like it adds up to a point that I can't ignore it. You know what I mean? But then when I try and like actually think about it and break it down, it doesn't really make sense. But then like when you think about it, I don't know. This, that's why it's really confusing for me. So um, if you're listening to this and you've played with Teferi, you know, hit me up with uh, what your thoughts are on the card, how it's been for you if you've played it, uh, what kind of list you're playing it in. Narset on the other hand, 
Yeah, this been, is what I'm curious to, for to talk about here. Narset was probably the sleeper uh, uh, planeswalker. I did not think this card was going to be good. One of my friends had asked me about it. Said, "Hey, Leovold seems like a pretty nice effect to have," and I was like, "Haha, nah, not really. It's three mana. It just draws a card and then dies." But I don't know. Like this card has been also very impressive. The fact that it's like it's just like a it's like a blue buster. You play it, and now your opponent can't play any brainstorms, any ponders. They can't play their Sylvan libraries. They can't play their Elvish visionaries or their Gristle brands. Um, there's a lot of per, like like splash damage that Narset has on the format. Also, it's like a three mana card that like draws you a card and then like also shuts down Jace the Mind Sculptor. I think that's kind of absurd in my in my mind. Baleful Strix is another one. So can I give my distant analysis of this with with no with no testing of this card? You know I'm never going to say no. Thank you. I like it more than Teferi for a couple big reasons. The value is very clear on its ability. You are drawing relevant cards in your deck and you can likely do it twice. You can definitely do it once if it resolves immediately and if you do it again, that's great. The passive ability, like, I, I compare this static ability to, to fairies in that it is good against some of the format, and it's good some of the time. It also is potentially better than Teferi's static ability, in my opinion, in the, in the matchups where that ability is going to tilt the scales for you, which, which makes things really interesting, Right. So Teferi's ability requires you to play more cards, so the onus is on you to then leverage that and your opponent to have something to interact with that card you're playing that, they, that they're now not able to do. Narset is by itself generating value with no other cards and passively preventing your opponent from doing something without you having to necessarily do anything else. So when you add all of the, the factors that, come into play with what makes what could potentially make the card good in a given blue matchup or a good scenario i, I definitely like narset there personally those are all really good reasons i and i agree with that i think moving forward actually narset like for anybody who's listening also if you're a speculator this might be the this might be the card to like look into because no one's really been talking about it but it's an uncommon right what's so it's never going to be worth anything it's an uncommon i oh, think sure uh, actually, it did it did come out in a promo edition, so that could be like a pretty cool collectible to to get if okay. you're yeah yeah. Narset just very impressed. Looking to continue playing it. I know a friend who tried to play like Narset combo, and when I say combo, I mean like Narset and like it was like Gyre Reach Sanitarium or something to sort of lock your opponent out of the game. But that's just like a cute little brewski that you know may or may not be good at some point. And then let's see what else. I feel like I had. I I was like profitizing the doom of the legacy format because like the new Jace would just be the ultimate win condition in miracles. Friends, I I was I was wrong about that. Wait, what? You thought that the new Jace was gonna break miracles? It's so elegant. Have you seen yeah, it? What, it's, what's, it's, what's it called again? The it's Jace, comma wielder of mysteries. First of all, that name is just absurd. That's a cool name, <laughs> right? Uh, second of all, like, the art is awesome. Third of all, it just says if you draw your deck, you win the game. What else could you want from a card? I think that is a I problem yeah, this is a very with the Miracles card. community. Is that, like, 
Yeah, Ryan, you're saying exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> like everyone is so concerned about drawing cards that they like quit winning matchups, which is what happened when everyone was on four AKs and like two or three predicts. Everyone's like, "Well, yeah, I'm gonna draw my deck, and then my opponent can't do anything." But like, once people realized that miracles was all air, it quit winning. Yeah, but the but they got Galaxy Brain on this, so they did what you're saying, and then they're like, "Wait a second. We can win again doing <laughs> still drawing our deck. Oh, that's that's funny. Isn't that cool that like legacy is starting to become like a little bit faster of a format where the meta actually matters now that there's no like dump like exceedingly clearly dominating deck like Grixis Delver or Miracles. I like that. I like that a yeah, lot. Yeah, we talked about that in a previous episode, but I think Legacy is the best it's been in a very long time. But uh, while we're still on the topic of new cards, Anurag, I've been brewing up lists with Bolas's Citadel. And uh, I've been playing it in Vintage since you can tinker into it. And tinkering into Yogmoss Bargain is, you know, obviously degenerate. But it makes me want top back in Legacy. So uh, maybe if we write a love letter combined, the two of us, maybe even holding hands to Wizards, they'll unband top for us. Wilson and I are going to partake in a bet. And <laughs> listeners of the chat, be, be our witness Sahili, the sublime something, whatever, Artificer, or the one hybrid blue-red, blue-red card, I think that card is just bad. Wilson, do you agree? No. Okay. But Take, take it away. Okay. Well, do we want to say what our bet is? Um. Yeah, go ahead. You you have the details. Of, and and I, I know we got yelled at for being semantics, but this is semantical, but this is the semantics are going to be kind of important. And this so just bear with us. Hit me. So we bet, I bet Anarog that Sahili sublime artificer is going to be better card in legacy than Teferi time reveler. And a key part of this bet is that I said, we needed to wait until the hype wears off of testing the new cards so that we can get a good idea of, whether they have an actual impact on the format and what impact they have. So I suggested that we start the clock at six months after the release of the set and then go one year after the release of the set and look at that six-month window at that point. We can maybe hash out the details, but a reason for that is actually exactly what just happened, which is everybody goes into this legacy challenge soup and they play all of these things that they want to do, play, and they hype, and then Anurag goes and he top fours an event with Teferi in it. Says that Teferi is bad, but because he is a good player and has a good deck, Teferi happens to be in a list that makes a top four of an event. So what I would like to do is, is sort of account for that and uh, give us some sort of buffer for when we start. The thing playing. is, Anurag and the Miracles Cabal, six months from now, could start playing four Tefiris in their deck just to win this bet. And uh, I, I don't know who, <laughs> who's true. going to be... I've been outed my my dastardly strategy. So because of that, I nominate Bryant as the unbiased judge of this competition. Well, so is this like a slap bet? Can account, I be slap bet commissioner? Uh, like Are you going to slap Anurag? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we'll go with that. Okay. Hey, Brian, all so, I'm saying is 40 divided by 2 is 20. Ooh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Actually, Wilson stole $50 from bribery. me uh, using fantasy baseball as his vice. So I would like my $50 back from Wilson. So uh, I'll start with 20. 
All right, I don't know what all this is about. But let's talk about these cards. So, Sahili Sublime Artificer. I'll just go ahead and read it because it's a spoiler. Listeners may not know it. Whenever you So, it's one colorless and two hybrid mana. Uh, it's either a blue or a red for both of those hybrid mana. So, it's a three mana Planeswalker. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, create a 1-1 one, one colorless servo artifact creature token. It is a five loyalty Planeswalker and has a single activated ability for minus two it says target artifact you control becomes a copy of another target artifact or creature you control until end of turn except it's an artifact in addition to its other types so do you even know why i like this card i mean we haven't even really talked about this no no i don't actually so I've... where do you think that this would be potentially played well friend believe me if i thought he could be played I'd, i wouldn't have taken this bet so blow my socks away okay fine so I believe that this card is a difficult to interact with young pyromancer variant that has a more powerful uh, young pyromancer ability, obviously, because it's sort of the mentor ability. It's non-creature spells. It's not just instants and sorceries. And it can't be killed by creature removal. It starts at five loyalty. So the play pattern I see for this is a, uh, a difficult to remove permanent that starts churning out an army of creatures and in a large portion of Legacy, uh, that's, that's going to be difficult to deal with. The innocuous part of this is the activated ability usually should not be used. It's more of like an alpha swinging ability. Let's say you play this card in a deck with some Gurmag Anglers in it. Um, you really want to be making tokens just doing your blue thing. And then potentially on a turn where you start to get extremely aggressive, you turn one of your server servos into a Gurmag Angler and get in there for a massive chunk of damage. But that being said, I think that the activated ability needs to be an afterthought. It's just a, uh, a difficult to interact with uh, creature army in a can permanent, essentially. I do know that some Storm Brethren were talking about possibly brewing with this Sahili brother um no but the last card that i want to talk about is karn the great creator uh i think this card is going to like have a huge impact um i've watched it played like a little bit and already i've been very impressed just because like uh i think the passive is pretty good it's like a null rod type of effect the the plus one is also pretty co cool um it you know, takes an artifact and then converts the uh, converts it into a creature with like CMC equal to sorry with power and toughness equal to the CMC. Of note, this is interesting because it can kill Chalice of the Void. It also makes um, pretty big creatures um, if you're in like a Stompy style deck. And then obviously, like the biggest interaction is the minus two, which can ser serve a search out uh, what is it called like Mycosynth Lattice or something like that, which is a six mana spell that turns all your opponents permanence into artifacts and then karn says null rod so you opponent can literally just not tap their lands for mana um any longer um so that's kind of game ending uh i think this is really good and also the fact that it can tutor for other artifacts or useful cards like explosives or crypt or uh like ballista even pithy needle at uh, this one canonist there's a lot of cards that it can get i'm looking forward to see the kind of decks that can uh leverage this card Interesting. So if I can give my breakdown real quick of new Planeswalkers, sort of my summary of what I think about them and how they should be evaluated. I think that in looking at these cards, uh, one should first ask, what do I almost always want to do with this Planeswalker 
regardless of what my opponent is doing. Let's say they have only played lands the entire game, and in my deck, how does playing this Planeswalker uh, progress the game in a way that gives me a significant advantage? Okay, so that's that's basically a wordy way of me saying all of these secondary or tertiary abilities that interact with different decks and different scenarios in, in, in a variety of ways, I think can be way overvalued by applying this hypothetical ideal scenario to them. It's why I really like both Narset and Sahili, and uh, not a big fan of some of these others. I think Karn obviously has some applications, um, but those two Planeswalkers in particular, they pass that test for me, which is I play this card, and for Narset, there's a, an impulse ability where I'm immediately able to impulse for powerful spells and I have a Planeswalker in play that is going to be able to do that again on the next turn if my opponent doesn't do anything. By the way, sort of the secondary or tertiary ability of, uh, of the static ability is there, but then I can evaluate that sort of, sort of after the fact. Sahili is the same thing for me. So the primary ability on Sahili is the static. Basically, it's an enchantment uh, that is difficult to interact with in some ways, easier to interact with in others, right? And it's a, it is basically producing an army of, of tokens for you. Um, we know that that type of card is good in Legacy because both Young Pyromancer and Monastery Mentor are pillars of the format, you know? So this card is sort of objectively from a distance not as good as those two, but as long as it can do those abilities well enough and has some advantages over the other two to make up for the disadvantage of, of not being a powerful creature that can also attack, um, I believe that advantage is being difficult to interact with, then I think it's playable. Um, it has a secondary ability on it, which is that copying ability, which is going to distract a lot of people. I think it's a relevant ability, but it's not the main ability on the card. So that's me rambling in a way to sort of say, you know, we're, we're in a new world here. We have Planeswalkers that sometimes only have one ability. They're, they're minusing. They have static abilities. It's, it's a strange new uh, card design and dynamic, and that's how I would approach them personally. I like that. I'm going to just announce a couple other cards that I have seen. We're not going to really talk about them because, I mean, I have no, nothing to say about them, but... Uh... Liliana's Triumph is a card that's seeing play. I think Gideon Blackblade got ninth place in the challenge. Three copies in Death and Taxes. And uh, please don't play Dovin's Veto. I don't think that card is good. So Liliana's Triumph, maybe we can stop there for a second because that's definitely a playable card in Legacy, right? It is Diabolic Edict, but it can't target. It doesn't target yourself or your opponent. And it has an upside if you control Liliana Planeswalker, so your, your opponent discards a card. Um, not targeting has some relevant interactions and not being able to target yourself. Uh, but in general, if, if you see that upside is relevant, I think that's, that's something. Um, note that the not targeting is also not only relevant for not being able to sacrifice your own creature, but it's relevant against Leyline of Sanctity, which is something that sometimes gets played. Um, particularly in, in some sneak and show sideboards. I don't think it exists as much anymore, but I, it's somewhat relevant. So, and Leovold. Leovold is another big one. Yeah, no, you're right. That That is certainly uh, significant. So this is a removal spell that I think will definitely see significant play in Legacy. And for some players who enjoy their old border cards and sort of the flavor of, of, of the format in terms of uh, getting, getting sweet old cards, I think this is going to be sad for some people to see basically a, a Diabolic Edict that is better. I'm not going to say strictly. Obviously, that's not <laughs> accurate, and there are many people out there that will be unhappy about that. 
Uh, but it is generally a better dialogue he used. Yeah. Please don't play Dovin's Veto. Uh, Veto. I just I just think that, that card is a trap. What does um, that do? It's the blue-white negate that cannot be countered by spells or abilities. Oh, is it uh, it's just a blue and a white? Yeah. Blue-white counter who, non-creature spell. Who on earth is suggesting playing this card? This I think you you even like naming this card shows me that you are deep in some some internet communities. <laughs> Look, if I, I think I if I have to say that a counter spell is bad, like that's how you know, you know, like you know, a mana into a color intensive negate should not be played in legacy is our uh, is our take on this one. So. But it can't be countered. Oh man, Anurag likes it. <laughs> he, he does no, like no, it. no, stop, stop, leave me here. Le- I have found my peace. Oh, no, man. you said the right thing. That's a, that's a good analog. That's good. All right, guys. We're done with this episode. We'll catch you in the next one. Thank you, everybody, for joining. And uh, don't forget, the Eternal Glory podcast is brought to you by... Cardboard Live. The Epics. Cardboard Live. Cardboard Live.